In your Bibles this morning, I would like to invite you to Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. This morning we make a transition, a pretty major transition in Paul's letter to the Romans, in which we move into areas of practice, of Christian obedience, things that would be regarded as more practical, experiential in the Christian life. But what I don't want us to do, and I, I'm absolutely convinced that Paul would not want us to do this, is he would not want us to treat these parts of Romans as two separate parts. He would not want us to, to think in terms of, okay, now we're leaving doctrine and now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Now we're getting down to what do we actually do. This is, this is what really is important, what we do. I don't want us to think along those lines. And, and there may be probably a, a spectrum of, I guess, expectation among people who are here today in, as we transi- transition into Romans 12.1. On the one hand, you might have folks who are like, oh, man, I really like the doctrine. Stay with the doctrine. I want more doctrine. I don't want to move into you know practical, experiential, everyday stuff. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have those who are like, wow, I'm glad we're done with that doctrine stuff. That was heavy. Let's get into how do I apply this in my everyday life. But I think what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to hold these very closely together. And he wants us to, to see doctrine not just as theoretical, but that doctrine is practical. And he would like us to see the things that we do not not without the foundation of the belief that undergirds them. And so he wants us to see these things together, to hold them together in our minds and in our doctrine and in our practice. And the reason I'm convinced of that is because of the word therefore. He makes the link for us. He holds these together. And it's a very tight connection. And so when he says therefore, he is drawing back into our minds... Everything that he has said, I believe, everything from Romans 1 through Romans 11. And he's saying, in light of all of that, here's now what I'm exhorting, encouraging you to do. And so let's just think about some of the things that Paul has said in Romans 1 through 11. Now, I'm not going to preach all of Romans 1 through 11. But I just want us to remember some of the things, some of the major things that he has taught us in this letter already. How did the book of Romans begin? The book of Romans began with really a, a reminder of the sinful condition of the world. The sinful condition of the world, how that in our natural condition, we are estranged from God. We are under the wrath of God. And that left to ourselves, we would continue in that alienation from God and we would continue to be under the, the judging wrath of God, and we would be without hope. And that's true not only for uh, the pagan, Gentile, unbeliever who's never even heard the gospel, but it's also true for the very uh, religious, up, upright, moral person in society, that both of us, both the pagan who does, has never heard of God, as well as the, the moralist, the religionist, if you will, 
the one who thinks that they can earn their way to God by their good behavior, both of us are under the wrath of God. We're under the wrath of God. And without the gospel, without the hope of our standing before God being accomplished by Jesus Christ, we would be without hope. And so Paul teaches us, after showing us our sinful condition, whether in paganism or in hypocrisy, he shows us our sinful condition. And then he shows us how the gospel is the remedy for our sinful condition. And how that by grace, through faith, alone in Jesus Christ, we are justified. Not by works, not by the law, not by religious rituals or observances, not by anything that we can do, but only based on the finished work of Christ. That's what he says in Romans 3. God set forth Jesus, appointed Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. Jesus was our sacrifice. Jesus was our means of atonement. Jesus was the way that God's wrath against sinners was appeased. So by means of his sacrificial death on the cross, when we unite ourselves to him in faith, then we are justified. We are declared righteous before God. And Paul says, having then been justified, Romans 5, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in a relationship of peace, of reconciliation with God because of what Jesus has done for us and because we have been linked to that work by faith. And so Paul then says, okay, so, so because we've been saved by grace, we can go on and do whatever we want, right? Romans 6, Paul says, no, we can't go on and do whatever we want. Grace teaches us that we need to live righteously. Grace teaches us that we cannot go on in sin. The, the righteousness that God is working in our lives is a righteousness that says we are no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from that former tyranny, that former enslavement to sin. That right there shows us that the doctrine is not separated from the practice. Because in Romans 6, Paul reminded us, no, grace doesn't mean we can live however we want. Grace means that we move on and grow in sanctification and holiness. So doctrine and practice are linked. They're inseparably linked. And then in Romans 8, Paul explains the great hope of the gospel that, that everything that we need is provided for in Christ. And we have a secure future hope, a, a hope that can never be taken away from us because it stands in Christ by the appointment of God. And so that Paul can say in Romans 8, 29 and 30, everyone who has been called by God, foreknown by God, they are justified Everyone who is justified will be glorified. And at the end of the chapter, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in heaven, nothing in the depths of the earth, nothing, neither future nor past nor present, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 9 through 11, Paul wrestles with the unbelief of the Jewish people how, why it is, how it is, and, and how it fits into the plan of God. And he finished Romans 11 by showing us that all of this is within God's outworking of his salvation plan. That the unbelief of the Jews has led in God's plan to the belief of the Gentiles. 
to the salvation of the nations. And then in turn, the salvation of the nations will then come around again and result in the future salvation of Israel. So it's all accomplishing God's plan. And then he says, praise be to God, right? He finishes Romans 1 through 11 with a great doxology. God, his, his wisdom is infinite. His paths beyond tracing out. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his counselor? From him, through him, for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So all of that, everything that God is, everything that God has done, all of his grace and all of his mercy, that's what Paul means when he says, therefore. That's a lot. But I think he means that. I think he means to connect us back to everything that he has taught us in his letters so far. So he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant, Paul, and the way that he has taught us and the way that he is continuing to teach us through these words. Lord, help us to see this morning the importance of the relationship of what we believe to how we live. And may we then give ourselves to you wholly, fully for your service. And may we do this, Lord, as an act of worship and praise to you. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I've titled this message, Christian Praxis. And you might think, I've never heard of that word praxis. It's not something we use very much. But according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, praxis means this. It's an action or a practice, such as an exercise or practice of an art, science, or skill. But especially the second definition that it gives that is the practical application of a theory. And it's in that sense that I mean it, the practical application of a theory, except in our understanding, it's not a theory, it's truth. So it's the practical application, the outworking of truth. And the reason praxis is important is because it, it remembers the link between what is believed and what is practiced. It is the outworking of that which is believed. And so it is, um, it is a response, it is an action, it's an expression of the knowledge that we have in Christ. And so it is, uh, it is really the natural outflow of one who has been brought into relationship with God. And I want us to think about that, that the therefore... In, in Paul in Romans 12, 1, it's not just a logical inference. In other words, it's not just, he's not just going point A, B, C, and therefore D. He is doing that, but I think he's doing more than that. I think what he is showing us in the outworking of his argument is that doctrine and what that doctrine does and accomplishes and means in our life must necessarily work itself out in our lives. So in other words, the fact that Jesus died for us, he died in order to make us holy. 
He died in order to make us righteous. Yes, righteous in standing before God. But even more than that, he has died to make us righteous in practice as well, in our actual experience. We have been called to God by his grace. We've seen in Romans 8 and then in 9 through 11, that the sovereign work of God in drawing people and calling people to faith, awakening within them the knowledge of who Christ is, awakening them to the truth of the gospel. God has done this. He's called us. He's drawn us. He's chosen us. He's brought us in to make us his children and to make us live as his holy children. As Paul says in Romans 4, or in Ephesians 4, 1, let us live then worthy of the calling that we have received. So we've received a calling from God, a spiritual calling to salvation. Now let's live that calling out in our lives. So there's a tight connection there. It's not just a logical connection, but it is a salvation connection. That justification always leads to sanctification. Always. There is that pattern in the gospel. So what Paul is saying here is not just advice. This is, this is a gospel exhortation. This is a gospel exhortation under the inspiration of the Spirit, with the authority of God. And so he says, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of what he has called us to, I urge you, I exhort you, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, brethren. It is a term of family. It's a term of being on, in the same faith. It's a term of being in the same family of God. And he exhorts them not by means of authority as an apostle. He doesn't say, I urge you as an apostle of Christ, though he could have done that. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, brethren, as joint members of the family of God. This is how we are to live. And then he says, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. In other words, he is basing his exhortation on the foundation of the mercies of God. In light of everything that God has done for us in his compassion and love and mercy to us as sinners. Here's what I exhort us to do. And I think really when he says, in view of God's mercy, he is really bringing into that Again, everything that he has taught us in Romans 1 through 11. That everything that we are, that everything that we, every place where we stand before God as forgiven is because of the mercies of God. In view of God's mercy. And here's what he exhorts us to do. To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, let's just stop and think about that. Because Paul is using sacrificial language. He's using language of the Old Testament. He's using language of Leviticus. In which someone would bring an animal, a lamb, a bull. And they would come and they would kill that animal. And they would take its blood and they would offer that blood. And they would then take the, the animal and offer it as a burnt offering to God. And they would offer that as 
an act of worship to God. It was a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice on multiple levels. For the animal, it was the sacrifice of death. For the owner of that animal, it was a sacrifice of a means of livelihood, of sustenance. It was, uh, it was an investment of time. It was an investment of giving the very best, a spotless sacrifice. It was giving of the best that, that one had to God. And the different offerings that were given, some of them were given as sin offerings or as guilt offerings, that is to atone for iniquity. Other offerings were given as thanksgiving offerings to give thanks to God. Others were just free will offerings given for the praise and worship of God. Paul doesn't specify here what kind of offering he's talking about, but he just uses this offering sacrificial type language. And he says, I am urging you, brethren, family of God, to offer as a sacrifice to present before God your bodies. Your bodies. Now, don't take that as meaning just your physical body without your mind and soul and spirit. I think what Paul means here is, yes, definitely the physical and the actions that we undertake in the physical, but so much more than that, the thoughts and the underlying spirit behind those physical actions. I think really what Paul means here is your whole selves. So even though he uses the term of a physical body, he is meaning this in terms of all that you are, everything that you have in terms of your thoughts, your conscience, your actions, your words, all of it, give it to God as an offering. You might say, how do we do that? How do we offer ourselves, how do we offer our bodies to God as a sacrificial offering. Wouldn't that be, that would, that would be human sacrifice. That's against the law. How can we offer ourselves as sacrifice? We would have to die. That's why he specifies, right? He says, as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Why a living sacrifice? Well, one, because a dead sacrifice is no longer necessary, is it? A dead sacrifice is no longer necessary. Even though he's using Leviticus-type language, sacrificial language, Paul is writing from the perspective of those sacrifices have now ceased. Those sacrifices are done. We no longer need a bull or a goat or a lamb. We no longer need to bring an animal sacrifice to stand in our stead to atone for our guilt. Why? Because one final sacrifice has come. Jesus Christ. Romans 3.25. God presented Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Uses the same language. God presented Christ as a, a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement, appeasing the wrath of God for our sins. Once. Final. No more sacrifice needed. It fully accomplished atonement and propitiation for God's people. So we don't need any more dead sacrifices. But what God desires now is all of us alive. 
alive, breathing, continuing. I think the idea here of living is not only living versus dead, but living in the sense of continuing to live and be alive. In other words, and and this is not just a one-time offering, is it? Even though Paul uses the language of a one-time offering, just like you would bring a lamb or a bull and offer it at one particular time in one particular place, he uses he's meaning then that we offer and continue to offer as a perpetual offering to God the rest of our lives as a sacrifice to God. But while we continue to live and breathe and move, giving your bodies as a living sacrifice. So Paul describes the sacrifice using three adjectives. One of them is living, a living sacrifice. You must be alive and continue to be alive and give your life as a presentation of an offering to God. But then he says also holy, a holy sacrifice. The idea of holy is simply to be set apart to be consecrated for God's service. We belong to God now. We belong to God. Why? Because we've been purchased with a price, haven't we? Paul says in Corinthians, we have been bought with a price. Therefore, he says, our bodies no longer belong to us, they belong to God. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he is talking about that in the context of sexual immorality. And in the context of sexual immorality, Paul tells the Corinthians, your bodies don't belong to you. To use your bodies in the practice of sexual immorality is to misuse something that no longer is under your ownership. Because Christ bought you. Now you belong to Christ. You're no longer slaves to sin. You've been set free now to serve Christ. He is your new master. Holy. Set apart. Sanctified. Belonging to God. Which means then that our lives, our whole lives, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, our morning routines, our afternoon lunch, our evening supper, our jobs, our hobbies, our exercise, our entertainment choices, our music, our movies, our time on the internet, our games, our relationships, our marriage, our family, our children, our job, our vocation, our, our uh, desires, ambitions, all of it belongs to God. Therefore, God should be the center and the focus of what we do in and through all of those things, all of those areas of our life. Holy, set apart to God, and pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. We are here for the pleasure, for the honor of God. That reminds us of what he said toward the end of Romans 11, for from him and through him and for him are all things. That is, why are we here? We are here for God, for the pleasure of God. Revelation 4.11, by your will, Lord, everything has been created and for your pleasure, these things have been created. 
We are here for the pleasure and the glory of God. And then he finishes the verse by saying, this is your true and proper worship. There's a word that Paul uses there toward the end of this verse. It is a Greek word that is only used twice in the entire New Testament, both by Paul. It is a word that is never used, not even once, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it is a very rare word in the Bible. And so we've wondered, what exactly does Paul mean by this word? We've seen this word used in ancient classical Greek among the philosophers. And among the ancient philosophers, the word meant something of to be the engaged with the mind, that which is thoughtful, that, that which is uh, uh, serious, well thought out. Some translations translate it then reasonable. I think the King James has that. This is your reasonable service. Uh, some translations put it as your spiritual service. The problem with some of those translations, reasonable gives off the idea or the connotation that, that this is what, that which is appropriate. This is your reasonable, it, it matches, it fits as a service to God. Spiritual connotes the idea that it is something that takes place in our inner man. Something that, that only involves a, a spiritual aspects. Of our life. I think Paul means more than that. I think what he means, it's something similar to what the NIV does here. They use true and proper. They use two words to try to convey the sense of one. But I think what Paul is intending here is for our worship to be really worship, for it to be really thought out, to be, for it to engage the whole person, for it to engage the mind and the body, for it to to go down for our worship to be down to the very thought level and conscience level of our being. I think that's what he intends. And that in that worship is not just going through the motions. Worship is not just an external activity, but that worship involves the whole being. And, and if that's what he means, it's a very well thought out, very intentional, very serious, very full giving of ourselves to worship. Then that fits with giving our bodies, our whole selves as living sacrifices, doesn't it? In other words, we could say Romans 12.1 very simply this way. God deserves and demands all of us. God deserves, why? Because of who he is as God, as the creator. But even in addition to that, because he's bought us with the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, he deserves and therefore he demands all of us. That is our whole life, our whole thoughts, our whole heart, our whole love, our whole ambition, our whole desires, all of it in God. As Paul would put it in Philippians one twenty one. For me to live is Christ. I think that's what he's saying in Romans 12, verse 1. For me to live, that is, while I'm alive, while I'm living, I am Christ's. I am here because of Christ. I belong to Christ, and I'm here for Christ. That's my life. 
And so God desires all of us. It's very similar to what we read in the Old Testament, where God says he does not delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings. What does he delight in? He delights in a broken and a contrite spirit. In other words, he wants the whole self. He doesn't just want the actions or going through the motions. He wants all of us down to the very heart level. How do we do this? It's a natural outflow of the gospel. It's a natural outflow of the gospel. In other words, what undergirds the ability for us to live this way is the gospel itself. And without the gospel, without the good news that Jesus Christ has given himself for us and called us to him through faith, without that foundation, we would simply be trying in our own power, in our own moralistic ability, trying to do this. But it's not on our own ability. It's not on our own power. We're not just trying to make ourselves more moral people. We're trying to live out through the power of Christ, through the power of the indwelling spirit, we are seeking to live out that which God has wrought within us. He's already begun this work. Philippians 1.6. God has begun this work and he will see it through to completion. Philippians 2. God has worked in you salvation. Now, let's work it out. So, We do this based on a gospel foundation and we do it through the abiding power of the Holy Spirit using all of the means of grace that God has provided to us in this this life, including his word, including prayer, including his church, fellowship of believers, including the accountability and love that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ. All of these means of grace that God has provided to us We are to use in the power of the Spirit, based on the gospel, to live this way. And why? So that we can impress other people? So that we can show other people how religious and spiritual we are? No. So that we can be well-pleasing to God. For the honor of God, the one who saved us, the one who bought us. And so may we live out the gospel because God deserves it and he demands it of us. So may we live it out in faith. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. When we stop and think about what he has accomplished for us, even though we were sinners, even while we were still enemies of you, We were hostile in our thinking, rebels opposed to you. And yet, Lord, in your grace, in your love, you sent Christ to be our sacrifice, to be our redeemer. And now, Lord, because Christ has bought us, we belong to you. And you've called us to yourself through faith. And now, as your children, you are doing a work in us that you have begun. So Lord, may we, in the power that you give us, built on the hope of the gospel, may we offer ourselves continually, daily, perpetually for the rest of our lives as a sacrifice to you, as an act of worship. And Lord, may may this be well-pleasing to you.
Give us focus. Give us energy. Give us the mindset each day to wake up with the purpose that our lives belong to you. And in whatever we do, may we do it for your honor and glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.